Welcome back to Restless. My name is Father Joseph Gill, priest of the Diocese of Bridgeport. I just forgot for a moment what uh, podcast I'm on. <laughs> Sorry. I do another one as well called A Flame for Christ, which, by the way, if you've never tuned in, please uh, I tune didn't into know that, that one. Really? Yeah, all my homilies. I put oh, on podcast, the homilies. Oh, okay. podcast that's, format. That's a horse so, of a different color. Horse of a different color. Watched Wizard of Oz on uh, Christmas night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see. Uh, so, so you've joined Paul, Joe, and Lauren as together we seek the face of Christ, which starts at our baptism. And today's topic is the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, because we've all experienced them. At least all of us have experienced both of those sacraments. But uh, have we experienced the fruits in our life? Have they borne fruit in our life? So first of all, what do you know about your baptism? I'm assuming you were all baptized as babies and don't remember it, right? Yes. I actually, so my parents lost all my documents, like birth certificate, all those things, um, when I had to get my driver's license. But no. one of the forms that you can use to get your driver's license in the state of Connecticut is a official baptismal certificate. Wow. I did not know that. Which has a seal, has a notary seal on it and everything. And Yeah. And so that's what I used. Oh. Yeah. Good to know. How do you, wow. So I was baptized in February 1991. Okay. Wow. 91. Yeah, I'm old, Joe. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's like, I don't even remember 1991. Well, I was born in 98, so I don't know. I'm a, I am the second youngest here, though. <laughs> Man, 98, I was... Yeah, this... this I, was, uh, I was a freshman in high school in 98. Eight. This young adult podcast is becoming a little top-heavy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, we're still young adults. We're still it's young. It's up to 40. Well, you're That's the one going to age out. I'm going to age out very soon, and that's why when Joe becomes a priest, he can take over Restless. When I'm 30. When you're 30. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Go. You got 10 years yeah, you got to 10 run years. it. Yeah. Exactly. So, okay, so yeah. none of us remember. Danny, do you, do you know of any other uh, stories from your baptism? Like parents told you anything, or do you remember when yours was? February 1991. Thank you. We heard you already. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> No, although I do, I do occasionally have episodes where I'm terrified that of the possibility that I, that we baptized me instead of I baptized me, you know. Ah, uh, yes. Why don't, why don't you tell that story about uh, what happened a couple of years ago? There was a, there was a priest, uh, Minnesota. Father Matthew Hood was it Minnesota, Detroit, somewhere like that. Um, somewhere that's not here. Yeah, and his he discovered that his parents had a video of his baptism, and so he was so excited to see it, and he watched it, and he saw a permanent deacon say. We baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the problem with that is that we didn't baptize him because we can't baptize him because only I can baptize him because it is the priest in the person of Christ saying, I, Jesus, baptize you. So he was never baptized. And his bishop asked the then CDF, what was then called the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, if he would have been validly baptized. And the answer was no, which means he wasn't a priest because only a baptized Christian can become a priest. And That's he was never, never validly confirmed, had never validly confected the Eucharist or forgiven a sin or validly contracted marriage with, for people or um, any of the things priests do, never validly anointed somebody. And some people uh, were like, oh, how wonderful, we could be ordained twice. And I was like, this is horrifying. <laughs> like, this is the worst thing I could possibly imagine. Isn't there a doctrine, though, that's like the church supplies? Yes. Okay. So the people that did not actually receive the Eucharist received a great amount of grace from it, nonetheless. But how do you find all the hosts that aren't the Eucharist? I mean, it must be scattered around, I mean, at least in his own tabernacle. Yeah, like, in his own tabernacle. You just bring it, bring out all the hosts and you conditionally think, confect the Eucharist. That's what you do? You wouldn't just put them all in like a large, um, what are those little little dishes called with water? Ciborium. Oh, oh, no, no, I wouldn't dissolve it. I would take them out and Interesting. say, if you are not the body of Christ. I think we might need to ask Vatican of what the proper course of action is there before. Maybe. I don't <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, I think it's a well, wild story. Well, I mean, to, to, be, to be quite frank with you, I've been at some parishes as a priest where I'm not sure that the pastor has said the right words of the Eucharist, because there's been some priests that have not. And so there's been times as a priest that I mentally 
in my mind, say, Lord, I'm, you know, concelebrating this mass and mentally consecrating anything in the tabernacle that's not you. Because you don't think they've used the right words. Because they may not have used the right words. A Eucharistic prayer, it's actually very short. It's very few words that actually... Yeah. Well, the words of institution, yeah. This is my body. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah. But there's priests who mess that up and say different things. If you do it, I mean, there's different... If you mess it up because you want to change the words... Or if it's just like a slip of the mind or whatever. That still happens. There's a difference. Yeah. Anyway. But Joe, to go off your story, I I was uh, very concerned that I was not validly validly ordained a priest because they used the wrong oil. I remember you telling me that. Yeah, Yeah, because you're supposed to use chrism, of course, which has a very unique smell. And at the end, you you go in the back in the middle of the ceremony, you wipe it off on a little napkin called a maniple. And uh, and we're we're all smelling it. We're like... Maniple? Manitergian. Manitergian? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) And, and a little napkin. <laughs> Can you a story? Yes. All right. So and we're all smelling it. We're like, this smells not like chrism because you, hmm. you know what chrism smells oh, like. It's, it's very, very pungent. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And so um, later, when I did my first anointing as a priest for the anointing of the sick, I opened up my little vial and I'm like, hmm, that smells like chrism. Wait a second. Did you just take a look? So I called some, yeah, I called some, <laughs> I called some priests. I was like, can you check your your stock of oils? And they're all like, yeah, that's this was switched. So I was ordained with the wrong oil. But I reached out to the diocese and said, you know, is that the critical piece in the sacrament? They said, no, the critical piece is the laying on of hands oh, and the prayer of, prayer of anointing or prayer of uh, consecration. So That's fascinating, though, because if ever you're anointed, like a bad wish, I mean, anointing of the sick, by rights, on a priest, the, the chrism goes in the back of your hand because the friends have already been anointed. But on yours, perhaps they wouldn't. <laughs> if ever I anoint you, I'm going well, to bear. My bear, hands can make the body and blood of Christ. If, if ever I anoint you, I'm going to bear that fact in mind. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Mm-hmm. Lauren, do you know anything about your own baptism? I've seen pictures, you know. I don't remember it. I was also a really small baby at the time. Okay. So about about a month after you were born? Um, maybe a couple months. I'm not sure because I was born in May. I think it was over the summer. Okay. That brings up a good question. How long should you wait to get a baby baptized? What does the church say? There's no official oh. teaching. Well, before so. seven years old, otherwise you have to go through... Catechesis. Right? Oh, jeez. You're going to wait that long? Yeah, I'm just saying, like, that's, that's kind of <laughs> like... Bare a, minimum. It's, it's, a, it's a... I don't think I'd wait more than a month. I like think I'd probably month. do it as fast as possible. I don't know if this is... Why like, the urgency? Salvation. I mean, Why not? Like, For the child? Yeah. Why not? In case they die? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You never know. I have an aunt who... Um, her One of her... She actually lost two children very young, but one of them was born a healthy boy and, like, within a few hours just died suddenly. Oh my gosh! Oh. So like, who's it? That couldn't happen in the course of a week or two. Especially, I mean, like they get a they get some virus or something, and yeah. Um, Have you baptized like NICU babies and babies like that that are kind of good? Once, yeah. once uh, the baby had Down syndrome and was born, and, mm-hmm. and so I went to the NICU and baptized. That was the only time. Okay. I just asked that because I don't think most people understand or would think there would need to be any kind of urgency. Obviously, you aren't thinking your kid may die. I mean, obviously, it could happen, but it's rare. Um, they know they have to get their kid baptized, and it's probably more of a when does it work in the schedule kind of a thing, like because you want your family to come for a party. So when will that fit in? Right. Right? You know, I, I think don't it's know. Probably I just think is, that's how uh, most people go about it. The church teaches that there is that they cannot. the church cannot conceive of of how salvation could come to somebody without baptism, which doesn't mean that the actual sacrament has to be performed on somebody. It doesn't mean that um, God can't save those who haven't been baptized. But as far as we are concerned, baptism is essential to salvation, right? 
Well, yeah, we believe that God, that we are bound by the sacraments, but God is not bound by the sacraments. Right. So God can do whatever he wishes and give right. whoever's grace, grace to whomever he wants. Right, but it'd be weird, it would be weird to not do it if you believe that, which is the problem with people don't believe that, but... Mm. You have access to the sacrament. I don't think priests charge particularly much for it. Right? Like, um, <laughs> it's, it's, baptisms are free. Aren't baptisms are free. They? I have no idea. Yeah. So Not there you weddings. Go. Not weddings, no. <laughs> yeah. Unless you want to like do a eloping type situation, that might be free. Yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do a free wedding, but not when you're doing $10,000 reception. Right. That's where you're kind of like, mm, nope, you need to be a little yep. generous to the church. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think the at least the Italian tradition would be that you don't leave the house. The baby doesn't leave the house like until... That. Until the day of the baptism, mm. I like that because that that shows a seriousness about the sacrament, right? Because it's danger. There's a danger. So all of that is true, but what about like, I mean, what about what what does happen to babies without baptism? Because isn't there like first of all baptism of desire, right? So if the mm-hmm. parents would have desired that the child be baptized, I mean, isn't there like kind of that like almost mm-hmm. grace baptism of blood too? Baptism of blood, which obviously wouldn't take... Well, actually, I mean, w- w- tomorrow, uh, we're recording this in Christmas week, and tomorrow's the Feast of the Holy Innocents. Mm-hmm. That They were baptized by blood, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we call them saints. So, aren't those enough? I mean... I would say yes. You guys are looking at me. You're a priest and Joe's a seminarian. But, um, yeah, because, we, we, I don't know, we know God is gracious and good, right? So, uh, I don't think he's a stickler on things like this. You know, the baby died suddenly before baptism, but the parents intended to baptize them or they're faithful Catholics or faithful Christians or just believers of any kind. Like, I think that soul is saved for sure. It'd be the desire of the parents in that case, right? Because the child doesn't have the faculties of reason. <clears throat> um, the church does not have an official teaching, to my knowledge, on what happens to um, particularly babies who are, who died. Even like, think about like an abortion, right? Exactly. Um, but that what, that, what the church doesn't do is say they are definitely saved. Um, I, there are different theories, right? Limbo is a popular one. I've heard some that involve angels caring for the baby until such time as the baby can like make its own decision. I'm not sure how much that works, but um, I've heard different theories. There are different theories, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the church has not said one way or the other. Um, but I do think the church generally thinks that there's a difference between um, a, a child who dies having been baptized, one who one who dies having not been baptized. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, certainly it's different in terms of like a funeral ritual. I, right. I did a, a funeral of a child who died about two, was about two weeks old when they, she died, maybe a little, a little older, but very unbaptized. The family's unchurched and everything. And so you don't use a pall on the casket. You don't mm. use a, a Paschal candle. And, and the prayers are very different for an unbaptized child. Wow. Can because the parents didn't want really to baptize sad. the child, you're saying? They weren't. Yeah, this particular family um, was not church going at all. But and why were you doing the funeral then? Because the grandmother was very church going. Mm-hmm. It was one okay. of those, like, you know, grandparents really pressured. Okay. Could be the desire of the grandparent. Yeah. So, so, on that vein, okay. is it okay for, for grandparents to baptize a child whose parents are not, you know, are remiss at doing that, you know, in, in the bathtub or something? I actually was considering baptizing a child who was about could have died very easily and was about to have open heart surgery at two days old. Oh my gosh. Wow. And they're not church going folks. They're not particularly religious at all. And there would have no, no way like a priest would have ever been able to come in, but that's kind of an extraordinary circumstance. So did you do it? No. And what, what held you back? I don't know. It just didn't feel right. Hmm. Also the, the baby was in the PICU. Like 
It was a weird situation. Yeah. Like, I couldn't touch the baby at all. I'm assuming the baby survived. Oh, yes. Yeah, the baby's fine. That's good. Yeah. Now she's three. <clears throat> I could be wrong. So if you're a canon lawyer listening, please feel free to email Father Joseph and... <laughs> not, not Joe. Tell not Joe. Joe. No, no, don't don't, don't email think Joe. about emailing me. Email. email Father Joseph and tell him. <laughs> um, my understanding Wait, is that... The presumption of baptism, and this is why that there, there are essentially sponsors for baptism, right? Godparents, is that you're baptizing, if you're baptizing a baby, since they can't consent themselves, well, you're consenting on their behalf, but you're also consenting on your behalf to, to raise this child in the faith because you're now having, having died with Christ in baptism and now risen again with him. Like now you have all the moral obligations of a Christian. And so you have now you have to be taught how to live as a Christian. So if, you're, if you are not going to do that, if you're not going to help a kid, um, live a Christian life, and if there's like, so let's say you're the grandparent, and you know that your that this that this kid's parents aren't going to raise them in the faith, and you don't see yourself being able to do it for one reason or another. Live across the country or something, or yeah, yeah right, yeah. Or, or you're like 95, and this baby, and you're like just like as, as an actuarial matter, like I don't see this working out for me, right? Like then I think there's actually a, I think there's actually a presumption in the church that you or, or, or a preference that you don't baptize. I could be wrong, but I think there's a preference that you don't baptize them because again. We are doing is raising the level of moral culpability to some extent without any of the corresponding education or the child. You're saying the child, yeah. yeah. Um, now, would it be um, valid? Yes, as long as it's done correctly, right? If it's the Trinitarian formula, anybody, I believe, actually, I, I know even a non-Christian can baptize. Yeah, you don't have to be baptized yourself to, to do a yeah. baptism. Oh, I didn't else. know that. You just have to attend the church so, what the church so means and do it properly. Yeah, a Jewish nurse in, in a NICU can can baptize a child in an emergency. Hmm. As long as you say name. You know, insert name. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son. Do you actually have to pour water three times? Yes, that's required for validity. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah so not once, and that's a big one that the church had to define that. And not we. And not we. Yeah. <laughs> or not, us. What, or what? not God. God baptizes you. No. Yeah, that's Can't not say that that's either. Not true. And, yeah. and and it used to be popular in the '80s and '90s for people to say, "I baptize you in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier," so that they wouldn't use a male pronoun for God. Yeah, that's good. Oh, there was a priest in, in uh, Philadelphia who got uh, caught doing that and had to contact every single person he baptized in the last 25 years and rebaptize them. Here's a here's a crazy thing that just occurred to me. A question for you: um, We say that again, the priest stands in the, or the deacon stands in the person of Christ when they say, "I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." So, had Paul baptized that that baby, would he have been sitting in the person of Christ? Yes. I don't know. That's dogmatic, everybody. Take, take it to the bank. <laughs> this is why they debated about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin. It's an interesting question, though, because because um, if not if even a non-baptized person can baptize, what you're saying is that even if you're not a kingdom priest, you could stand in the person of Christ for this one sacrament. That's wild if that's true. It is wild. Like, this I is mean, me that's... speculating, people. I'm not. I don't know. I'm just asking. Just asking questions. This. Uh... Well, I think just the the urgency of that sacrament is so necessary for salvation that God, sure, opened it up to everyone. Have you ever denied a baby baptism because of the state of the parents or some other familial situation? There's a difference between a denial and a delay. A delay, fine. Either. Yes, I have delayed. But this was one particular family who was not practicing and not a member of my parish. And they wanted me to come to make a special trip to their parish because I had done their wedding like four years prior. And they remembered me and I was, I was the only priest they'd ever met in their life. Oh, and I said, well, are you practicing? You plan on practicing? No, no. Then I'm not going to make that special trip. And you can find a deacon or a priest at your own parish. And, and they, were really unha- they were really unhappy. I don't know if they ever baptized the child because like we got into like quite a, an email back and forth because they couldn't understand. I mean, there, it's interesting how, and it is so deeply rooted in human beings to... to <coughs> To, to baptize the child, but then not have any follow-up after that. And, I'm, and I was basically just said, like, well, what's the point? 
you know, you, you told me flat out you're not planning on attending mass with this child. Like, what's, why am I bothering? And they're like, well, but baptism is, you know, I don't want them to go to hell. I'm like, well, I mean. They take them to mass. Take them to mass. <laughs> yeah. like, so that's actually more beneficial to this child than, than just getting a baptism and doing nothing. So, but no, I mean, if, if anyone requests a baptism, otherwise. So I think that shows, and I would say it goes beyond just that couple. There's an un, a lack of an understanding of what actually happens in baptism as far as the sacrament and the grace that we are receiving. Um, an explanation that I've heard is, you know, a lamp gives light, correct? But the lamp needs to be plugged into the wall to receive electricity to turn on, right, and give light. So before the fall, we were all plugged in to electricity, which is God's grace. And then after the fall, the plug was pulled out. So we are born as lamps, but we need to be plugged into the source of grace, and that happens through baptism. It's a great analogy. So... Father Andyville, thank you. Um, <laughs> what I, I, when we get to this whole the validity, you know, I mean, uh, what do you guys think? I think that those baptisms are valid. Which ones? The improperly said baptism, but the intention is good. I would say that the person is receiving that grace from God because God is gracious and good, right? And they are intending to do a correct baptism, but it's a human error. So they they get the grace because I mean we need there's real grace here. It's not just like a symbol, right? Like we, right. we're not a faith no. of symbols. There's an actual connection well, to God happening an, and a spiritual protection too against sure. demonic forces. It's an efficacious symbol, though, right? Um, and I mean, again, the the, the now dicaster the doctrine of faith has said those baptisms are not valid. I know. But, so but, I think they have to say that because we need to maintain the proper order in how to do it. So they have to say it's not valid, but I think the grace is still given see, by well, God. That's, that's the whole thing that Paul brought up about the idea is called ecclesia suplet, right? That God, that the church provides the grace when the sacrament is done improperly. So you're right. Yeah. You're right in the fact that, you know, God would not, if Father Matthew Hood died before that, you know, got rebaptized. Yeah. Would he be saved? I would certainly hope so. Sure, but there it wasn't is his fault. I get the impulse, and I share it to say, well, God wouldn't let these people go to hell because you know, um, a trendy deacon in the '70s decided that we had to baptize instead of I baptizing. But at the same time, sacramental discipline is actually like a real thing. And if we believe that the sacraments are real, then they can't just be they can't just be either done however we want. So in the same way that. Um, we wouldn't expect that a father were to say, you know, um, I don't know, um, eat this in, in memory of me at Mass. Well, is that validly confected Eucharist? I mean, those aren't the words. Does it matter the one word? I don't know. I mean, from one perspective, maybe not. But from another perspective, I mean, the Church has said, this is how you confect the Eucharist. This is the most mind-blowing thing a human being can do. And um, the arrogance that it takes to just change the words Right? It's like, well, I have to be so inclusive that we have to baptize. That's what matters more. No, the kid's salvation matters more, right? So, like, from the perspective of the kids, are they saved? I mean, I sure hope so. From the perspective of the minister who thinks that they're so important that they get to redefine, you know, uh, what the words are for a sacrament, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> At the same time, I, you know, in defense of those ministers, you know, it, the formation was not the best sure. in seminaries in the yeah. 70s and 80s. Sure. So, when you're talking about saved, you know, this is making it seem like you get baptism and you're saved. You don't get baptism and you're not saved, which is not the case. So, so here's the question then. What is the connection between faith and baptism? Because our Protestant brothers and sisters, most of them, you baptize when you make a personal de- declaration of faith, when you're seven years old or 14 or what, you know, whatever it is. We baptize as infants. I mean, is there a connection between personal faith and baptism? Like if a couple comes to me and does not believe any of it, but grandma's telling that we need to get baptized, should I baptize them? 
Well, I think for the kid <laughs> to have the grace, right, to be plugged into the source of God, uh, you know, um, our spiritual lives, like, yes. Um, and the protection against demonic forces is real through baptism. And demons are everywhere, wreaking more and more havoc. More and more people are not getting their kids baptized. And I think we're going to start to see the effects of that, again, played out in culture, yeah. uh, you know, in the world. It's a like what we read about in the Gospels, right? And I don't know, I remember, like, I think most of my life thinking, like, is this real? Right? Like, people, I mean, yes, because it's in the Bible, I know it's real, but it's, like, so far-fetched, right, to imagine someone being possessed by a demon, Mm because it's so not in society, but most of us, up, I think, until my current generation of people is now having children, everyone's been baptized, yeah, now people are not true. baptizing their kids. So I think we are going to see this playing out. And you know, there's a great um, parable that Jesus tells in the Gospels about how when, when a demon gets cast out of a house and it gets all swept clean, then remember seven other demons will try to come in. And if it finds that there's no occupant there, they will come in. So yeah, we've, we cast out the demon of paganism a long time ago, but now if we've not filled the culture with Christ, then there's going to be seven more demons entering in. They're here. Amen. <laughs> I would say, to answer your question, I would say, I feel like, and I don't know, conferring the sacrament is, of baptism in particular, to an infant, I don't know, I feel like, maybe I'm wrong, but independent of the state of the parents, that's not a bad thing. Mm. Right? And in terms of moral culpability, if the child's not being raised in the faith, but they're baptized... It's still probably better that they're baptized, right? I don't know. Other than that, they're going to be not raised into faith either way. Wouldn't it still be better that they're baptized? Yes. And you could say, you know, the parents may not be forming their kids, but how often do the grandparents get to see their kids, right? Their grandchildren, right? The grandparents can help form the kids and how they treat them and even just the gifts they give them, right? Unless they're 95. Across <laughs> or just, well, for as much yeah. as they can be a part of their lives forever, how long or short, right? Because also, you know, um, like I, I recently heard of a conversion story of like a guy in his mid-20s and he went so far off the deep end, right? Like atheist, like on drugs, alcoholic, living this horrible life, totally turned away from God, and then encountered demonic forces um, in this house he was living in. And clearly somebody there was like really engaged in it, right? So Mm. you could feel the evil. um, um, And um, he had a conversion. And uh, through that experience, he knew it was all the rosaries that his dad had been praying for him for years, right, for his son to come back. So it's like we can build up grace. That's the term he used. We could build up grace for other people. So you may have a small impact in a, in a child's life or the prayer that you do that's not even, you know, engaging with them could help them later on. Yeah. I think, too, of the example of some saints like Blessed Carlo Acutis, who's our patron, you know, because he was at three years old leading his parents back to Mass. I mean, he, right. if, if it weren't for the grace that he had been given at baptism, Right. He wouldn't be a saint because it wasn't his parents forming him. It was, it was vice versa. And a gift of faith, maybe just from God? Yeah. Yeah. Direct infusion of faith. Yeah. Um, the catechism says two things, which I think are relevant to this conversation. One of which is that um, the faith required for baptism is not a perfect and mature faith, right? Because the presumption is that faith grows after baptism. So that's one thing. So even if we say faith is required for baptism, perfect faith is not. Um, that would be an unrealistic expectation, I think. Um the other thing is that 
it's not just the parents involved. It's not just the grandparents. It's not just the sponsors, right? The godparents, I mean. Um, those, all of their roles as, and, and as relates to the, to the child being baptized are ecclesial, right? So in other words, um, it's not like I'm leading this child uh, to whom I am the godfather to the faith. It's like I, as a member of the church, am raising them with the church. And so um, if a kid's baptized to parents, uh, if a kid's baptized and his parents aren't faithful, and his sponsors aren't faithful, and his grandparents aren't faithful, well, there's still a church. And, and because that function is ecclesial, it falls to all of the church, which the Catechism says in 1255, across all the church to, to be responsible for each individual Christian's formation. That's why we have cate- catechists um, in parishes, right? Um, that's why priests exist in, for, in part, right? Um, so, um, yeah, is faith required? Sure. Um, but my understanding is that similar to how the Eucharist is the Eucharist, whether I believe it or not, baptism, baptism, whether um, I believe it or not, because again, we're talking about a, vic- a, vic- a vicarious acceptance of baptism on behalf of the child. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Thank you. So we have, we only have a couple of minutes to talk about confirmation. We have so much baptism time. So I know like a lot of Catholics see confirmation as graduation. So how do we, first of all, what was your experience of confirmation? You know, do you, did you take it seriously at the time? Yeah, I took it fairly seriously, but I was a sophomore in high school and there was 200 of us or something mm. and in my parish and it's mass produced. Yeah. We were all wearing red gowns and there was a big picture afterwards and it really in a big like party and it really did feel as though. It was graduation. Graduation. Yeah. yeah. It was, it had a little bit of that feeling to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I had sort of just recently gone through my reversion to the faith. So it meant a lot to me at the time. I can't say it meant too much to me. I was more interested in baseball. At were, the you, time. were you eighth grade? I was ninth grade. Ninth grade. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I remember picking my aunt as a sponsor and, and I very much love my aunt, but I didn't, don't think I put any reflection into it. No. I was like, oh, she's there. She's not my parents. So yeah. Is this yeah. your godmother? Check. She's my godmother. <laughs> But it makes sense. I did the same thing. My godmother is my confirmation sponsor. Church. Okay, it is a preference. It's actually my older brother is my sponsor. Oh well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we we pick. Who was who was yours? Uh, My first cousin. Okay. Do do you still stay in contact with him or her? Yeah. Oh, that's good. It's fine. I wasn't the most inspired choice. He's a good guy, but. Did you get confirmed not after the normal matriculation? Sorry. Matriculation. Matriculation. Is that the right? That's no, the proper use of the word, right? He's confirmed in eighth grade. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, with everyone else. Yeah. He's my eighth grade teacher. Yep. No, I was saying because you said that it, you had a reversion to the faith. But, yeah. So that was prior to your confirmation. Well, it was during my eighth grade class. Ah, uh, okay, okay, got For it. For reference, Why? see our episode on conversion <laughs> stories. <laughs> I, listened, I, was, okay. I don't know the exact. <laughs> I don't. I, remember. I did listen to that, but I don't know the exact timing of such. See for reference. <laughs> so I've I've been very blessed. I've sponsored thirty four kids for confirmation, and uh, and so I have them, all their names in my liturgy of the hours, and so oh, I nice. pray for them. There's, oh, okay. there's one for every day of the month. How about except for two days have two people? Kids that you're a godfather for. I'm only a godfather for one. Wow. Yeah. And I haven't seen him in like four or five years, haven't communicated. Do some priests have a lot of yeah, godchildren or is it kind of not a thing? I think Father Paul Check has a ton. It seems like everybody <laughs> at St. Sense. John's was <laughs> from Father Paul Check, but I don't know who's like, you, are you guys god godparents or sponsors? You, you're a sponsor of a couple. For two so. kids, yeah. I have three godchildren. Okay. Yeah. I'm nil on both. No? Wow. I'm just waiting. I have just no, waiting. No just confirmation. Someone. I have no confirmation sponsor, that's for sure. No? No. That one's harder, I think. Is it? Because kids baptized, but you got like at least 14 years before yeah, it, as much as you could do. 
<laughs> Maybe it's not fair, but like eight years. I don't know. Like how much can you really do when there are two? Well, one um, of my, that's one of my, like, I, but like, you know, all of a sudden you're this kid, you're sparking this kid and like, they might come from any kind of background with like parents, any kind of faith and you have to now like help them. It's, it's kind of a wild ride actually. There were a couple of kids I turned down. They yeah. asked. They asked me, and I'm like, mm, I, I think I may have been know. too young the first time I did it. I was maybe 16 or 17 the first time I sponsored somebody, and the kid I did. No, that's not true. I was a senior in high school. No, that's not true. Hang on. I was a, ju- I was a junior <laughs> so, in high school. So go back to the point about um, I think, I think conversions in faith episode. That <laughs> I think my questions are valid. <laughs> that's right. Because you don't even know yourself. So why do you, why do you say you're too young for that? Well, because I was in, I was I was uh, a junior in high school. This the kid was in eighth grade. Um, I taught him martial arts for years, but a year later he and I were in high school together. And like we were kind of friends, and so then when it came time to be like you, I, you aren't, you haven't been going to mass, and like you should be going to youth group too. And like, what's your spiritual life actually like? It kind of was like, well, this is my friend, and we're so close in age. So I think in retro- like I was very honored, and I'm glad I did it, and I still pray for him. But in retrospect, I think maybe I was too young, mm. or at least too close in age to the person, you yeah. know, which would is to say too young. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? I mean, first of all, your prayers mean a whole right. lot. And the fact that he had somebody that was his peer who he could actually look up to well, in that faith. That was the idea at the time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it actually means a lot. It really does. I mean, I can't say I've had deep conversations with every kid I've sponsored. It's one I haven't seen since his confirmation. Yeah. Hmm. But So do you, have you ever experienced any effects of your confirmation? Did you notice, like when you were confirmed, did you notice anything different in your life? No. I didn't have to go to like <laughs> Catholic youth group stuff anymore or like the, the confirmation prep. So it was kind of graduation. Yeah, but then I taught it. Oh. Yeah, they had like a peer-to-peer thing. That's so smart. That's smart. Home groups, they called it. Oh, our, our gosh, it was terrible at my church. But, oh, no. But um, we had a thing where you'd go to people's homes once a week and then to the church once a week or the school once a week. So hmm. I did the home group thing, and then I became one of the home group facilitators, I think they called them. It sounds like a good idea, but didn't didn't work out. Well, it, it, it all depends on the, the how well catechized the teenagers they have to have buy-in they have to want to be there yeah and they also have to know something yeah and a lot of the groups was just like go around the room and say the favorite place you've ever been Ooh. i grew up in an affluent town and it'd be like oh i've been to like bora bora or like italy and i was not particularly affluent and be like (laughs) disney world like i don't know (laughs) bermuda maybe (laughs) i've never been to bermuda yeah it's just not it's not particularly exotic compared to bora bora i think what i remember is the buildup of the actual moment of your confirmation where the oil is put on your forehead in a cross and like being told that you receive grace in that moment. So, you know, kind of being ready for it, but that's it, right? It's like, it happens. Um, and then you move on. We can't feel the spiritual world or spiritual effects. So, you know, aware. We we trust they're there. Yeah, Yeah. We trust that they're there and, move along. And I guess just thinking back on it, I think I had maybe 50 to 60 kids in my confirmation class. And, you know, you've been going for years and I had the same teachers for um, the later part, like when I was older. Um, and then it all just ends. So you don't see those kids anymore. Like you lose the youth community mm. in church. You're just back with your parents. I mean, I was always with my parents, but that's it. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, I, Faith is then. That's, that's the challenge is how do you keep them engaged? How's, how's it not graduation? Any thoughts? Well, you don't have to, if you, um, if you have education and then you have a ceremony and you stop having education, that is graduation. So one solution would be don't stop religious education just because the kid was confirmed. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no reason why. But would the kids come? 
Because it wouldn't well, be required. That's the thing. So like parents wouldn't bring them. I wouldn't think. Well, so that's a, that's that's an interesting question, and some wouldn't. But if it was just like the problem, I think is we approach it like, oh, and now we have this continuing thing you can do. No, just be like, all right, we have now you're confirmed in sixth grade. See you next year for seventh grade. Like, and if kids drop off, they drop off. They could drop off anyway. But like, just do it. Do it as it. Just kind of pretend that nothing's changed. Well, I think <laughs> that's kind of pretend having, that it's we're like, having, see what happens. That's where having a robust youth group really comes into but play. But even that, youth I not think not primarily catechetical, and that's the problem. Well, I think the other challenge is. It's not required. Like, so I run a youth group. Sometimes we have five kids. Sometimes we have 30. It's not required. So it totally depends on the family schedule. And that makes sense because the kids are in school and they have soccer and hockey and, you know, tutoring or whatever, a million things that they do. If it's not required, they're not going to come. And I think yeah. it's just the nature of scheduling. Yeah, but that's a culture we've allowed to, to. I mean, there are there are Christian denominations who don't really have any of the sacraments of initiation like we have, which somehow get their kids to go to their version of CCD for hours before school, right? So, like, there's just a culture among Catholics in America that has tolerated this really terrible situation. And I don't know how to fix it, but I think that one way to do it would just be to do it and see what happens. Like, mm. like yeah, so, so our diocese thing. is moving confirmation to sixth grade. So if you're a, a DRE, just... Don't stop having seventh grade QCD and see what happens. If you had 40 kids before and you have 15, well, that's not zero. But what's the curriculum? Exactly what there's it, all these well, questions there's no, now. There's no well, for example, yes, there's no end. Yes. Yeah, I mean, for example, you may you there's may no end to CCD. You may you may not. I mean, I mean, you may, you may not want to talk to sixth graders about theology of the body in the same way you talk to eighth graders about it. There's an idea. Yeah, there I mean, um, you but who can even teach it? Apologetics. You know, they don't have enough volunteers go, go for religion. But you had volunteers before. Barely. Just don't dismiss them. They barely have enough. <laughs> no, you're right? right. And again, see for our education uh, episode and get more volunteers. I'm fine with my CCD. In fact, I'd like to get rid of a couple of them who not who are not. But that's really? the problem is you need enough volunteers that you can get rid of the bad ones. Yes, yeah. That's always a challenge. But this is, again, like we wouldn't... Um, it's working out. No matter We wouldn't just like doing. pull somebody off the street and be like, oh, did you go to eighth grade? You can teach eighth grade science, right? So we shouldn't take somebody off the street and be like, oh, you were one seven. Could you teach seven, seven-year-olds CCD? Like it's wild the way we do this. Like there should be actual formation and education of these people who are going to then teach children the faith. It's wild that we don't have that. Yeah, well, it's yeah. a tough balance because like, you don't want to require too much. At the same time, you want to offer something. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, for, require the, for the anything. formation of the of the yeah. catechist, an hour. We could have more priests, and then that could help too. That would help. I teach all the eighth grade in my parish right now, which is three classes a week. Oh, wow. it's, it's wow. busy. It's robust, yeah. but um, yeah, you I mean, must a, enjoy it. Then. A parish with with wow. one or two parochial vicars should not be hurting for catechists because that's like what vicars are for. Yeah, and deacons too. Permanent yeah. deacons should be doing that. Roll up your sleeves, people. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, because I mean, well, I, Deacon I, Ernie in this town does everything. So because there's one deacon in the entire town of Stanford. I know, and he's great. God bless Deacon Ernie yeah. Jeffers. Yeah, an amazing man. Yeah. Well. We ran out of time. There's so much more to talk about with these two amazing sacraments, but tap into the graces that you've been given because you have been given graces of baptism and confirmation. They were not just to be put on a shelf, but rather to be activated, lived out through our personal faith. And the baptism makes us a son or daughter of the Most High. Confirmation makes us a missionary to the ends of the earth, especially to our businesses, our workplaces, our families, to our spheres of influence. Tune in next time to Restless. God bless you. Hey everybody, this is producer Matt. If you liked this week's episode of Restless and want to help the show grow, please rate us, review us, and subscribe on your preferred platform. God bless.